Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today on the show, we have Joseph DeLong, who is an OG Ethereum and DeFi developer and founder. Now, Joseph, how's it going? Thanks for being on the show with us today. Good. Thanks for having me. And it's really exciting to be a founder for the first time. Honestly, like I've always been kind of in close proximity to early stage platforms, and I've never gotten to be like the dude that is helping found the platform, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is exciting. And another thing I forgot to mention, another tag for you, I guess, or title is fellow Texan, which I love. There's a lot of great Texans in the Ethereum space in general, and you are one of them, sir. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, we have quite a bit of people in Dallas, a growing group in Austin, and a little community in Houston. And just about nobody in San Antonio, for the most part. I would say most of the people who are here are traders by nature, maybe one other developer or so in the San Antonio area. Yeah, it's interesting to see how Texas is starting to become just a hub and just a very welcoming place for the, I guess, digital asset and blockchain space in general. Are you kind of getting that sense as well? Yeah, totally. I, I think part of it is Texas is super lenient you know, tax laws. It's like you see a lot of people kind of leaving California and New York right now. And what do those places have to offer is a lot, right? Like in proximity to capital, like environment in California in New York, it's like proximity to capital, you know, kind of being the center of everything is very interesting. But like just being, you know, tax advantaged with maybe slightly less attractive outdoor experiences in Texas is, you know, doing really well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. That can be the part that Texas does lack a little bit is that don't really have an ocean front. We have a Gulf front, which is okay if you've ever been down there. But anyway, enough about Texas for now. Let's get started by just talking about your background. I I think you've got a very unique background that brought you to the space. Would you kind of just mind sharing? Just tell us the story of who is Joseph DeLong? Sure, yes. I I started when I was young. I kind of like didn't have any real direction and didn't really have much opportunity. So I kind of fumbled, you know, I left the house when I'm 18, which is like, Pretty standard for the United States. And I kind of fumbled from like, you know, job to job, like just not really doing anything until I wound up landing in the Air Force, which was, you know, I think very beneficial for myself long term. And I was in the Air Force for four years, did that, got out and went to college using like GI Bill, which is this basically scholarship for veterans to go to college a holdover from World War II. And yeah, then I started working at a bank called USAA. It's like mainly served veterans and their families. And I helped them start like a blockchain lab there. And then I was, you know, working on like Ethereum stuff, you know, for the bank. And then I met Johnny Ray, actually, who's like the co-founder of Element at USAA. Then we built a, a prototype at the first ETH Denver for like, a, it was very similar to like SETI at home for doing like big 
math problems, like that sort of stuff, big computation, distributed computation. We built that kind of on the first IPFS stack or first libp2p stack with a little bit of like Ethereum coordination for that stack. And then showed that to Joe Lubin and tried to get like acquired or invested by consensus. And he didn't really like that, like the platform, but he liked us. And so he hired us to do the ETH2 core development for consensus. We built the Teku client together in October of 20. We both jumped out actually at the same time, like just by coincidence. He jumped out to found Element. I jumped out to work for Dapper Labs for a little bit. Worked for Dapper Labs for a little bit. And then Maki asked me if I wanted to work at Sushi. And so I worked at Sushi for like approximately a year, leaving in December of last year. And after, you know, there was like, like all sorts of like crazy and turmoil like surrounding that. So I just kind of took a break for like a month. Took my family to like, to like Hawaii and Dubai and Egypt. We went like all the fuck over. Then like I met Justin and we started working on Astaria, which is this capital efficient lending platform. And he really liked the design and I really liked Justin. And so we, we kind of clicked and we started Astaria and we've been like fundraising and building ever since. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting background. And so, you know, you mentioned that when you were at the Air Force, you feel like that that provided a lot of, I guess, benefits for yourself. Do you mean like did it help you prepare for the blockchain crypto world or maybe just like helped you grow as a person? Like, can you elaborate on that a little bit? It totally, it was mostly like financial opportunity. This is like coming from a background where I was like extremely destitute to super poor, just living on a shoestring budget. And then, you know, the Air Force comes along, you know, offering something like 35K a year. For me at that time and in 2004, that was like, crazy money, you know? And, you know, after that, I got the opportunity to go to college, which really wasn't available to me before financially and, you know, maturity wise. And so after getting out of the Air Force, I kind of had this opportunity to get educated and go do something with my life. Yeah. And so you also mentioned at USAA that you helped them start up the blockchain lab over there. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to like around what year was that? And then did they already have the blockchain? 2016, yeah. Oh, it was 2016, yeah. Okay, no, that's fine. 2015 and 2016. They like started and stopped it once during like a a pump cycle and then restarted it on another pump, you know? (laughs) And that was kind of like around the, if I remember, like that was around the time where people were saying blockchain, not Bitcoin, right? Was that kind of the mentality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was totally the narrative. Yeah. And, you know, we got them moved so far along. Actually, Hudson worked with me at, at USAA. That's where I met Hudson. So I know him. He worked in the that blockchain lab. He helped start it as well. Well, yeah. Hudson is a great Ethereum core developer. Or I guess, it, is it, yeah, he's a developer. He led the all-core all devs call for quite a sure, while. He's, he's, a, he's a developer in, in that he's been educated in development, software development. But he primarily does project management. And so he he led the yeah the all core devs calls and did project management for all core devs. Yeah, I think he was at Flashbots too recently for a while. He was, yeah, or he was, yeah, he was there. Then now he's taking a break. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, he and he and I were actually like messaging the other day. I think we're going to grab a drink next week, but that's besides the point. That's interesting. It's just interesting that you and Hudson met at USAA, but I think that's just kind of how these stories unfold sometimes. 
if you remember like way back when from like an institutional standpoint, obviously USAA was interested in the blockchain space, blockchain technology. Can you think of any other organizations, institutions who were also looking into blockchain yeah. around that time? Yeah, uh, USAA, Ernst & Young, State Farm, Liberty Mutual, trying to remember like a bunch of insurance companies, Citigroup. Yeah, a lot of like banks and insurance companies were interested in that. And a lot of them were doing like lots of interesting and experimental stuff. But this whole blockchain, not Bitcoin thing tainted the the design space. Because in the essence, a, a private blockchain is well, it's great as a coordination mechanism, right? Like you gotta consider too these like Fortune 500 companies are never talking to each other. They have no systems integration. Like we would do subrogation settlement, which is like repayments after an insurance loss in between a bunch of different companies. We would do all of that. You would think we would have like a computer system that we'd talk to get to it. No, we did it all by mail. It was like internet packets that arrived by the mail because they would immediately like scan them in and OCR all the data in and then then use that to like computerize, generate a check and then wrap and mail it back to the other companies. So like having Fortune 500 companies like talk to each other or having connected systems was pretty interesting, but generally just like private blockchains are stupid. Like they don't make any sense because if you know who your counterparty is, then a Paxos algorithm is just as effective. The real innovation in blockchains, the real innovation of Bitcoin was trustlessness because Byzantine General's problem had been solved for some time by knowing who he is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. It's interesting to see, too, probably from your perspective, because you were involved in this so early on, that like just the attitude and how the attitude about blockchain and blockchain technology has evolved over time. Do you know if USAA is still involved in that space at all? The insurance subrogation system that we started for them to basically put all their subrogation on chain, as I understand that is still moving along a bit. But there are, I think of like, just generally the attitude has changed completely. I think like how absurd it is that Hayden got his bank account shut down by, you know, Chase Manhattan. JP Morgan Chase is in like, is the primary lead investor in consensus. They are buying up Bitcoin like crazy. And they're like, oh yeah, let's shut down like Hayden's like personal bank account. Like absurd. Um, But like, that's kind of like some ways we've grown and some ways we haven't. But I think about it like all the people who kind of like would be super negative in this space. But it's funny, like once the capital came, you know, kind of everybody shut up and they just became working for a regular company. Yeah, and I think a lot of the things that that you're talking about, like, you know, just everything being on chain and having these protocols be decentralized so you don't have to rely on any centralized mechanism for control. Because when you do have centralized control, that is a centralized potential point of failure, and that's a a centralized risk. And, you know, I think I just kind of look at DAOs and protocols the way that they're operating now and... Well, you know, the layer one is decentralized and the protocol might be decentralized. I think maybe the teams working on those protocols are utilizing centralized services for coordination, like Discord, for example, and and GitHub. You know, if those were to shut down, you know, I, I feel like there's a huge risk there. And do you like do you see that as risks for uh, protocols and DAO communities or and like what other risks do you feel like are out there that maybe aren't? necessarily being addressed 
That's interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, Discord, centralized services that you have to lean on are, are really problematic. I think generally the DAOs, people think of DAOs as people or a group of people. And I think that's probably the wrong way to think about it. I think DAOs should be what you're calling the coordination tools. DAO is not comprised of people. People are using a DAO or people are coordinating through a DAO because those kind of puts finite constraints on what you can and can't do. But the reality of the world is is that you're going to need much more latitude to operate. So say, for instance, that Index Co-op wants to have a hosted front end, right? They're going to need to sign a contract, which means they're either going to need one person to be the sacrifice to sign that contract, or they're going to need to set up a legal entity. And once you set up a legal entity, how does control of that legal entity flow? Does it flow like directly to the DAO? Because there's not a perfect analog to the DAO. So like there's complications with that. Or you need to pay a vendor. The vendor wants to be paid in regular money, right? So you, now you need a bank account. What do you do? Somebody's in your DAO and they're sexually harassing somebody else in the DAO. How do you kick them out, right? They have, you know, like, let's say they have a bunch of the tokens, can you kick them out? Right? There's is there a way to force them out? This is like these are all the like regular problems that are in the world that regular corporations deal with that DAOs just aren't ready to deal with. Yeah, I, I totally agree there. And I think another thing that you're kind of touching on is that, you know, I think we're starting to see the merging of these two worlds, right? The traditional meat space world versus the decentralized blockchain world. And as those two worlds are converging, are, you're kind of saying that like the lines are getting blurred on what we should do to move forward, right? Like you have a DAO, does it form its own legal entity, which might go against some of the philosophy of some of like the hardcore OGs of the space? So that you're seeing that, I guess it's it's more of like a philosophical quandary, right? Is that what you're saying? I think people see it as a philosophical quandary, but like. In reality, we just have to deal with the realities of the world until there's like legal recognition of a DAO in the same way that there's legal recognition of a corporation as an entity. An entity being like somebody who can act in the courts, somebody who can hold you know a bank account, like the corporate equivalent of personhood. We just can't do it without the necessity of having some coordinating corporation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think the type of person who is working in DAOs or working in Web3 in general is probably maybe has a different mindset than someone that works in the Web2 traditional finance world. And you've, I'm sure you've done your fair share of hiring developers. Mm -hmm. So like, what do you see as like the differences between those types of people, because you've worked with both at USAA and other jobs, what do you look for in, when you're hiring developers? And what are some of the differences and similarities you see between those two worlds? Sure, the design constraints for blockchain are much different than the design constraints for Web2. For instance, I everything has to be designed that the maximum attack that can happen on the system is a grief. Attacks where there could be you know, theft of funds or attacks where there could be creating frozen funds or something like those are 
design constraints that you think about when you're building in Web3 that you don't necessarily think about when you're building in Web2? Because you're like, okay, we messed up the database. Let's just go roll back to our earlier copy, and that's fine. Because there's no money involved, really. Or if there is money involved, it's you know, money that's controlled by paper contracts and not by digital contracts. And this is a real issue in the blockchain space. So very often you'll hire Web2 developers and they'll think, oh, let's remove all this like Byzantine fault tolerance stuff. You know, it's taking up a lot of space or it's taking, you know, it's like, it's really labor intensive to deal with this like decentralization aspect. It's like, that's without that, there's nothing, right? That's the core tenant here. And it's just an ethos that you probably have to, you either get it or you don't. That's very interesting. Something you said just like so very plainly that I haven't really thought about is that, you know, basically digital contracts are a lot less forgiving than Web2 code, right? Or TradFi contracts. And so do you see yourself like having to retrain when you do hire people from Web2 and move them to Web3? Do you have to retrain them on just like what we perceive to be very basic Web3 things like the Byzantine generals problem? or Byzantine fault tolerances? Luckily, like when people are leaving Web 2 to come into Web 3, they're kind of like crypto curious a little bit already. So they have an idea of the principles. But if you're hiring somebody fresh out, yeah, you have to talk to them about what it is. Why, when you're hosting a front end, you can't keep a database of users, right? Like why, when you're hosting a front end, that the greatest failover has to be into a safe state where the user can access it, right? Like saying that we'll have a very sophisticated front-end host with load balancing and et cetera, but the failover is an IPFS front-end that we is a static implementation of the same UI, right? Like why do we have that? Is because we want the end user to always be able to access their funds or manage their funds in a decentralized manner. And when you were working in this space, I know that you have deployed on various, various layer ones and layer twos and side chains. Did you feel like that each community and each side chain, each layer two had its own personality or culture? Or did you feel like it was it was pretty much the same? Yeah, they're they're totally different, I think. And then also the other consideration is that those people who are on that chain are very much like getting rewarded in the native currency. So like, say if you're on AVAX or something, you'll be getting AVAX. And if you're on BSC, you'll be wanting to get like BNB. And so they have like kind of a vested interest in there. But yeah, totally. Like like BSC is like this wild west of scam chains and, um, you know, Optimus Arbitrum or like Ethereum Lite. Polygon is like, this is probably like an old perception, but Polygon was like the wild west for token farming, et cetera. I think that's right. They each have their own little personality. Did you find that some teams were much easier and much more accommodating to work with than others? I'm not going to ask you to pick out specific chains, but what was that like? And what like other frustrations like do you run into when you're trying to coordinate two different entities in the Web3 space? Well, what two entities? You mean like, a DAO and this chain you might be deploying to? Yes, yes. Like that? Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like you have a lot of latitude to do what you want. And when you do, you're able to like kind of make a lot of progress in coordinating with these other chains. 
Polygon was amazing to work with. I really liked those guys. And they were very interested in pushing up Polygon. And so they gave lots of rewards for that to be given out to the users. And that was that was pretty great, actually. And they had a very good kind of like business mind around what they were doing. Well, that's great to hear, obviously. Something I kind of wanted to pick your brain on a little bit was just on the market-making side of the DeFi space. Because I think, you know, when you look at a protocol like Uniswap V3 and the concentrated liquidity provision that it allows, I kind of see it as a platform for maybe professional market makers and maybe not so much for a retail and passive market makers. So do you think that like the Uni V2 X times Y equal K forks have a place in the DeFi world long term? And if so, like how can those forks or those passive market makers, I guess, if you will, how can they differentiate themselves from that capital efficiency that Uniswap V3 provides currently? Yeah, like I think the jury's still out on V3 in a lot of ways. I think the design is so good. Like I've come around to that over time. I think initially, like my impression was that it, it was not that interesting. Um, I think something like V3 on a platform like BentoBox will probably be the last design of iteration for AMMs for a long time because the design is so happily efficient and intelligent. But V3 is like, I think 90% of the positions in V3 are still underwater. So that it's that great for liquidity providers. It's great for producing a price. But if it's not good for liquidity providers long term, what are they going to do? They're going to walk away. And if you can produce a really good price, happily efficient, what difference does that make if your liquidity providers are walking away because it's unprofitable? That makes sense, too. And yeah, when you say liquidity positions are underwater, do you mean they're out of range? Oh, like they are in impermanent loss. Oh, in impermanent loss. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And compare that to Uni V2. I think part of that is to do with the path independence. And, you know, once you go above range, it's like if you want to adjust to get back in range, that requires you to swap in the same pool that you were just in to adjust your range, which turns your impermanent loss into a loss to adjust your range. And so it's just not that profitable for LPs yet. I mean, maybe maybe long-term it becomes profitable, but right now it's not looking so good. Yeah, and I think it's also very interesting. I mean, there was this conversation for a while about DeFi apps possibly creating their own blockchains. Like I know Compound hinted at this, for a while, and I think there's some other protocols who have touched on it, but do you see there in the future being like a an Aave chain or a, or a Uniswap chain, just app-specific? Or do you think that conversation has kind of gone to the wayside in light of the multi-chain universe we're starting to see? I think Compound has like quietly like swept that under the rug. The whole design of Ethereum and you know, EVM compatible blockchains is composition. Is I have other contracts that I can interact with. I may see application specific rollups. That would be interesting to kind of get a, a gas efficiency gain. But application specific chains are relatively irrelevant because it is this scaling design that makes sense 
in conversation, but when you put it to paper, it doesn't make sense, right? It's kind of the same argument of, why don't we just raise the gas limit, right? Raise the gas limit to like, you know, 50 billion gas per block. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, it would be great. But guess what? Like we can't propagate blocks and we have huge like data availability issues. And so like the application specific chain is like kind of the same design. like, let's just scale by increasing block space, right? It just doesn't work. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And when you're talking about the app specific rollups, would you not lose some composability on those as well? You totally would lose composability. Yeah. They would be designed in such a way that would allow you to have like some sort of cross rollup in between two rollups to maintain composition, which is like you could do like some cross chain composability too, but like I just don't see it working in that space for cross chain besides bridges. It's just like let me move the tokens from chain A to chain B. And that's basically it. Yeah. And there are still just so many hurdles in the DeFi ecosystem or that the DeFi ecosystem faces in gaining mass adoption. So I'm wondering, just like in your mind, like what are those hurdles to gaining that mass adoption? And what are some solutions that you could just think about on how we can overcome some of those hurdles? Yeah. Okay. So there are, I'd say, a few major problems with the user experience that aren't really discussed. I had this opportunity come to me one time. It's like, you can put your company's name on a, a Formula car and you can pay to do that or whatever, right? But like, let's say that you do that, okay? And you know, let's say you're Uniswap, okay? And you put Uniswap.org on a Formula One car. People show up to uniswap.org and they don't have an Ethereum wallet, don't have any Ethereum, don't know how to pay gas and they can't pay gas. What are they going to do on your website? So yeah, absolutely. Real issues, I, I was on mute, but I was laughing over here because that is such a good point. Uh, right. So the first issue is, is wallets. Okay. So we need some wallet solutions that are like custodial or like pseudo custodial, non-custodial kind of thing, like these like hybrids. So that's the first thing we need to do. Second thing we need to do is economic abstraction. These are gas relaying services that allow you to submit a transaction and pay for gas without having to have ETH. So that's the, that's the second problem. And the third problem is, is onboarding of funds. These probably like aren't ranked or whatever. You probably need to do these in some order that makes sense for the user. But like the onboarding funds. And so I come to Uniswap.org and I now have a wallet. I need to get money into that wallet. Okay, so what I have to do, right? Right now I have to go to like Coinbase or like Kraken or FTX or whatever. I have to go someplace and buy Ethereum with my credit card. And then while I'm there, why don't I just use that? Like, what's the point, right? Like sexes are like, you know, a hundred times faster. They have in some cases better liquidity. They have professional market makers. I can transfer directly to my bank account. There's a lot of advantages that sexes have that DEXs and so those are big ones. Wallets, onboarding, paying for gas in native currencies, economic abstraction. I mean, you really need those. And the, somebody needs to develop those solutions. It's kind of like old programmers. You, you say like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be great if I could search my computer for files and I'm looking for this specific file? And they're like, oh yeah, you can do that. Just go into the command line and type this. And people are like, no, I want to click a button and do that. I want to do it in my GUI. And sure, there's a way to do it now. But like for the average user, they're not going to know how to do that. 
they're not going to care how to do that. It's not like something they're interested in. Yeah, how far out do you think we are on solving those UI UX shortfalls that you just identified? One person has to do it right one time and everybody else will follow. I think there has to be some white labeled service to do those three things. It'd be like 20% of what Coinbase is, right? If you could like, and you could bundle that as like a white labeled service for dApps like Uniswap or Curve, right? So that they could just integrate it into their front end. Any user could basically come to their their UI and, and use it without having you know funds onboarded, not having a wallet and not having the native token to pay gas in. Like that would be fantastic. Yeah, and so many of these DeFi front ends are very, I guess, DeFi native friendly, but they're definitely not general retail friendly as well. So I can assume that once you have that type of integration, you're going to have to do a pretty big revamp of the entire front end or from a UX UI standpoint. Would, would you agree to that? Yeah, totally. I mean, Curve is a good example that has like a really attractive front end. It's like it depends on like what your like preference for is, but like it's got a really beautiful front end in terms of design, but like a really unfriendly UI in terms of user experience. You know, Uniswap has a very good UI and a very solid user experience. And so I think if you added something like what I was just describing to Uniswap front end right now, like people would be able to use it like today. Yeah, and Curve is who I was thinking of, so I'm I'm glad you brought them back up. That's who I was thinking of in that example. I understand this stuff. I still barely can't like move the controls on Curve. I don't really. <laughs> I look at it. I like am very slow to use it because I don't always understand it. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I think another issue that people talk about in the space, and this isn't really towards mass adoption or UX UI, but it's definitely like a community issue, and that's like the token voting system just as it stands today. And there's obviously like different iterations with like locking and the VE token model. But I don't know, in your mind, like what are some of the major shortfalls that you have seen on the governance side that we might not have a solution for yet, but definitely needs fine-tuning? Any of you have any just general solutions? Like, you know, feel free to throw those out as well. Interested to hear that. Like, how dumb is that? Like, like I have more tokens, therefore I know better. That doesn't really make sense from a, if I have more tokens, I have more skin in the game, and so I'm less likely to make bad decisions is probably a good good assumption. But I have more tokens, therefore I'm more intelligent to and need to voice my opinion about something is like probably not a good model. Yeah. So what what improvements do you think can be made on top of that? Well, I think that you need kind of like um, typical corporate structures is like with hierarchy and different stages of responsibility for each issue. So like a board of directors, a C-suite, right? And then a hierarchy of like how you operate. Not saying that like everything has to be exactly static and that someone who's a software developer can't also be in a C-suite and nothing like that. But it's just, you need to have a clear design of hierarchy for decision-making because Ultimately, when you say that we're not going to have any hierarchy, it creates an opaque hierarchy of who's in the organization and what their capability is. So here's an easy example. Okay, We're a group of five people and we decide that we're going to form a DAO and we have one person who is like acting as the person like the accounting, right? 
and they're making determinations on whether we, the person like the accounting, right? And they're making determinations on whether we pay for something or don't pay for something. The instant that they have that capability to control purse strings, there creates some level of hierarchy, right? It's like hierarchies are not, do not have to be explicit. Hierarchies can be said. Implicit hierarchies are opaque. And it's like so tragically uncool to be of this like mindset, right? It's like, you know, we're all just going to work together and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, that works great for teams that are like four or five people. And you start bringing in more people and you start scaling an organization. Just the round trip communication alone to make a decision, literally impossible. 20 people, imagine that you have to have, you know, 20 factorial conversations about something hearing the voices of, of 20 people about it, a single decision. You need to have kind of like areas of responsibility and a hierarchy to um, move that up. Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. So that that conversation is not just exhausting. You feel like it's it's impossible. Yeah, and it's like it's tragically uncool to be of this mindset, right? It's just, I understand that. But my goal in the end is to have people do DAOs and effectively coordinate in DAOs. I think that they're, People are lying to themselves, hoping that you know the last 20,000 years of human organization could be irrelevant because now we have a blockchain. I think that's like silly. Yeah, and I, I feel like I could stay on this conversation for a pretty long time, but I also want to get to the protocol that you founded as well. So let's go ahead and transition over to that. Is it Austria? Is that how you pronounce this protocol? Uh, Astaria. Astaria. Ast- like Astaria. Yeah. So yeah, tell me about it. What's going on with this project? What's it like to be a founder now? And just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so Staria is on capital efficient lending. And the way that we do that is by creating virtual tokens and lending those. So we have markets where people can put down collateral. And they're lending a virtual asset. The virtual asset is then like kind of atomically swapped for the real asset underlying. And we kind of came up with this idea as we were looking at isolated lending markets and thinking about isolated lending market has this real issue of illiquidity. So if every market has to have a permutation of every two pairs, which require increases your capital requirements to say, oh, I need to lend on you know this, this, and this market. And that becomes really problematic and the alternative to that is the with the Avir compound model where you have to kind of whitelist tokens. And so I was like, okay, well, what happens if we lend a generic token, right? Like, what if we lend a virtual currency? How does that change this design? And I think that helps us drive up um, liquidity in these isolated markets and allows us to lend to more users. Yeah, and so how far along are y'all in the development of this project? I think you said you're co-founders with Justin, is that correct? Yeah, Justin Bram. Yeah, he's here, by the way, in the audience. We are have been developing since, I guess, February. We were working on a simulation of the protocol. So this is a simulation is an economic design where you can simulate real-world conditions. So what we're doing is we're going and we're pulling old lending data from other protocols and feeding that into our simulator and seeing how our system would react and getting a determination on how capital-efficient we think the system is. In comparison to regular lending. Yeah, and how do you foresee this protocol being used from a co- composability aspect from with other protocols? I think for other protocols and, and users, they won't see any difference between this protocol and like Aave or Compound. 
the real capital efficient design is all under the hood and abstracted away from users and other protocols. So they would just say, okay, collateral, borrow, and, and get their underlying. Interesting, yeah. And so when I was kind of looking at the Twitter on this, I actually kind of thought this was a metaverse play at first until I started digging a little deeper down. Do you have any uh, projects that you that you work on, like on the side on the metaverse space, or do you have any favorite metaverse projects as well? Um, my friend just launched this platform or this um, this NFT series called Based Ghouls. I really like. It's actually my profile picture is one of the Based Ghouls, and I just think it's like really cool. And the developer did it for basically no payment. And the artist did it for no payment. It's a free to mint thing if you've done anything in the base community over the last like you know year and a half. And yeah, you just get a base school and you mint it, and it's just neat. It's not like a sad money grab like a lot of these like PFPs are. Yeah. So we're kind of running up on time. We've got about nine minutes left. Uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on that I don't know you want to touch on or address? I don't know, like as we were talking in the beginning, we were talking about Polygon. I kind of wanted to talk about them and like what they're doing. I mean, yeah, go for it. I yeah. What are, your, what are your thoughts on Polygon in general? I know you said they're great to work with, but what, I guess, what's yeah. just your overall outlook? And they're definitely spinning up, you know, like ZK roll ups, optimistic roll ups, like hybrid solutions. They've got the POS chain, they're doing subnets now with Polygon Edge. What are your thoughts? Are they spreading themselves too thin? Is this a good idea? Are they going to be the hub for all Ethereum scaling? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I thought they started out as a meme, you know? Like it was just like Matic, right? And I just thought like they have just such good business savvy on their end. This just makes sense. and It just makes sense. They're, they've kind of like when they had the opportunity to kind of like when they first started, they, it was nothing more than a meme, right? It's just like, Proof of stake Ethereum with a high gas limit. It's like there's literally no design element that's interesting in that. It's just like, okay, we have a high gas limit. Congratulations, right? Like you can only scale that so far. But they kind of memed it into existence by like their, I'd say like savvy use of their treasury by taking in incentivizing different dApps to come over, incentivizing their users on like and then when they had this crazy treasury, they, I think they had like a $10 billion treasury at one point. They take that and they go, okay, we're going to buy every ZK team on the planet that isn't working on something. Like we're going to make sure that we own every ZK team. Which like ZK talent is like very hard to come by. And like it's just an extreme amount of business savvy that just like Ethereum can't operate on that kind of level because they're just not built that way. It's like, it's like, you know, Ethereum's operating a bazaar and, and Polygon's operating a cathedral. Very cool. I like that analogy, too. Yeah, and there's a lot of Z... I mean, not there's not a lot of ZK roll-ups that are being worked on right now, right? There's like there's like StarkNet, and then there's ZK Sync, and then you've got... Polygon's got a couple, Hermes being one of them. I don't know, like, what type of DeFi protocols do you feel like would want to utilize the ZK platform over like the POS chain or Ethereum mainnet? Like what kind of projects do you feel like would just kind of gravitate towards that type of technology? I think in the end, optimistic rollups are a middle step towards ZK. Optimistic rollups make zero sense if you can produce an EVM circuit. And so like the end game is 
for scaling is ZK, right? Some coordinating chain with a state machine that validates ZK and submission of ZK circuits to be like validated, like proof to finalize a state. I think that's that's the end game. Well, that's a hot take, Joseph. Especially right yeah. now with the with the OP token airdropping to everybody. Oh yeah, I got some. I got some like I got like three thousand OP. Oh, you beat me. I got like two thousand, but that's okay. I'll Dang. take it's free money. Can't complain. Did, did you get it for being like a multi signer or something? I, I did it for Dow. I'm actually not on any multi six. I don't think oh, I really? want that responsibility. But Dow voting, I've bridged off. Optimism. I've bridged to other chains on different wallets. I mean, it's just an accumulation of five or six wallets that I have for different purposes, which is a pain in the ass to manage, but I don't know. It's fine, I guess. I never went and used Optimism. I got it for being a multi signer for sushi. And then what else did I get? I got it for giving to Gitcoin grants, which I do like all the time because I think like people are making dope stuff over there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, once the ENS airdrop hit and I, you know, I got those tokens, I was like, man, I just need to go hop on and use every single protocol that does not have a token yet in hopes of getting one. And it's working. (laughs) So, isn't that great? Like the ENS one? Because like ENS was such a sleeper. I mean, there was a time when I remember people would tell me about ENS or people would talk about ENS and people like would react like, oh, that's stupid. Like, why would I want blah, 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 dot ETH, right? It doesn't even resolve to a domain. Then like, they're like, they have just taken such a long-term vision on their protocol. And it's not like another sad, like token drop money grab kind of thing. They did it like after how many years? Like three, four years of development? Yeah, totally. Yeah, they were around for a long time. And it's, I think it's very interesting to see with every single retroactive airdrop that we're seeing, like you're seeing more and more sophisticated ways to incentivize the type of behavior that you want your token holders to have, right? Optimism did a great job at it. ENS did a great job of it. It's interesting to see, you know, like what's the Arbitrum one going to look like? You know, what, I guess, behaviors are they going to incentivize their users through airdrops to do? It's very, yeah, very interesting. I'm so bearish on anything but retroactive airdrops. I think like this, like yield farming is becoming broadly irrelevant because it's just like paying somebody to do something. In the initial phases where you're kind of like spiking, to get attract liquidity, to get like flywheel effects of the platform. That makes sense. But this like long-term emissions, like you see in Sushi and with some other platforms, it's just like you're paying somebody to do something. And you might as well like, but you're just paying them in your token instead. And so like people have made a business out of that. You know, like, oh, I'm LPing for sushi because I'm getting this, like these tokens, or I'm LPing for curve because I'm getting these tokens. It's not really like how it was originally intended to kind of like create long-term alignment between the people who are providing services for the platform. It has kind of become this like farm and dump mechanism. Yeah, it really has. That's something that the NX co-op has been pretty cognizant of, is that we will utilize the yield farming for, like if we want to start up a uni V3 pool. Well, it's kind of hard to do that. But, you know, like if we want to get assets on Polygon, we'll we'll incentivize that for a month or two, not for long, because unincentivized TVL is metric that we 
track on our products. So, yeah, that's something that we're kind of cognizant of as well. So, in my hearing, I like that metric. That metric is awesome. Unincentivized TVL. That should be that like needs to be a whole subcategory of like DeFi llama. Oh yeah, we we right, focus like, on it. Oh yeah, DeFi llama should totally do that. Yeah, that's something yeah. we focus on for sure because you know we have people who are holding our products because they want that exposure to that token, right? Or to that, to DeFi or to the metaverse specifically. So they think this is a good deal. This is the most productive thing in my mind that I can do with my capital at this moment, right? And like, there's something powerful in that. Not like this idea of like, this is the most productive thing that I can do with my capital so long as I'm getting a token, right? And right, exactly. seem like you can't wean them off of that. Like over time, it's like, it just like, like habit forming. Yeah, and it's like I think the death spiral of a lot of projects. Yeah, and just yield farming in general, when you have the degens just yield farming your token, it puts a lot of sell pressure, which you know hurts the investors in your protocol and, and the contributors in your protocol as well, which just seems like a net negative when you really long term net negative when you really think about it. But yeah, you have to be there has to be some sort of like ramp up on positions to like your rewards are some sort of a log curve in starting up. So I am, you know, let's say I'm, I'm taking LPs and I'm staking those LPs. My rewards should be controlled on a log curve or an exponential curve over time. There should be some incentive for me to stay longer rather than shorter. Yeah, and it's hard to find that incentive structure right now. But I feel like kind of what you said earlier it just takes one person to figure it out and do it. And then we've kind of unlocked that part of DeFi and crypto, I guess. That's what AMMs were, man. AMMs were like somebody, like everybody was fooling around building like, you know, Xerox and like Radar Relay and like all these like early, no offense to them, by the way, amazing applications. Building those first like decentralized exchanges and then they have like super thin liquidity and the markets crash all the time and they're highly interactive. And somebody was like, hey, what if we did this? And the first design for AMMs like popped up. They were just like an amazing and interesting design. Yeah, like you said, props to those very early teams trying to build that because they were building in the dark, right? They had no idea what they were doing. I mean, they had an idea what they were doing. They knew what they wanted to achieve. It's just, it's hard to write code on it's something so new and so innovative. But yeah, once it happened once, you know, a million forks happen and then you just keep getting more and more improvement over time. So we're over time here, but one last question for you. What's next for Joseph DeLong outside of your new protocol? I'm building a house. <laughs> you are? That's, that's uh, awesome. Gonna, yeah, I've been building the house for a while now, but... Out in San Antonio? Be able to move in. Yeah, we're going to be able to move in probably in like, you know, the next two, three months, which would be great. Man, I do love San Antonio. I think it's a very underrated city in Texas. I think a lot of people would disagree with me, but I love it out there. Love the Pearl District, love the Alamo, and that uh, I just uh, put in my two weeks notice at a traditional finance bank that is headquartered in San Antonio. I don't want to say who it is, but you could probably guess. So, Oh man, I know exactly who it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joseph, yeah, thanks for coming on. This has been a real pleasure. Always great to have a fellow Texan on the show. So, Last word for you, where can people go to find out more about you? And I'm going to butcher this. Astria? It's not Astria. Astaria. Astaria, like, yeah. sorry. A-Staria. A-Staria. Yeah. A you get a lot of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Joseph DeLong on Twitter and Astaria XYZ also on Twitter. A-S-T-A-R-I-A-X-Y-Z. Awesome, Joseph. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show with us. Those of y'all who are listening live in the Discord, thanks for listening live in the Discord. This is being recorded, so we will get this mixed and edited and out to you in about a week. Joseph, thanks again, sir. See you soon.